It is March 27th, 1957 at the Archaeopantages Theater and the NBC Century Theater in Hollywood and New York, respectively. We are at the 28th, 29th, excuse me, annual Academy Awards, where we are honoring the films of 1956. And it is time for the big award of the night. The envelope, please. And the winner is... Around the world in 80 days? 79 to 80 days. It's 80 days. It's eight. I mean, he, he gets there on the 80th day. That is very true. That is true. He technically made it in 79 days. Bingo. Yes. That, that's the big that's the big twist, isn't it? <laughs> but unfortunately, it didn't count because uh, he was arrested. I, I Spoilers. All so many spoilers. Um, <laughs> so many spoilers. What a big year for the Academy Awards. Now, I say big year because... I would say it's a giant year. Oh, yes. It is a commanding <laughs> year, isn't it? Just all these movies are really like what we've been talking about the last couple of years, where it's these big spectacle films, these event pictures, a lot of historical, biblical um, adaptations coming to the screen. This year really kind of shows that off more than other years. You've got Around the World in 80 Days. You've got Giant, The King and I, Ten Commandments, these big blockbuster wow. films all competing for Best Picture. I mean, yeah, Friendly Persuasion seems to be the only uh, non-epic that is nominated for Best Picture. And uh, in Best Director, um, the Ten Commandments was not nominated for Best Director, but War and Peace was for King Vidor. So, I mean, that's just another in a series of epic movies. I mean... Uh, Lawrence Olivier did Richard III this year. Uh, we also have um, Anastasia, which is uh, epic in in topic, if not in tone. So, I mean, it is it is a big year, a literal big year in Hollywood. Humongous, humongous. And also, if you look at those five nominees in Best Picture, this is the first time every single one of these nominated films is in color. So we've reached another milestone. Black and white pictures are not a thing of the past, but they're definitely becoming less of a norm when you're vying for awards. This is an interesting year in a lot of ways because uh, I think the reason that these large-scale epics really uh, take hold here is we are seeing the influence of television on film and the... uh, need for there to be event movies for people to want to go to the movie theater. So movies are longer. Movies are more uh, jam-packed with a uh, huge cast and uh, epic lo- location photography. Um, I mean, looking at the top films, uh, you know, there are two in particular that I'm looking at here, including the one that won Best Picture, that have uh, massive amounts of location work um, that really take you on a journey around the world in maybe a way that television is not able to do, doesn't have the budget to do. Um, Things are in Cinemascope, or in the case of Around the World in 80 Days, I'll just mention this real quickly before we, we'll talk about the movie later. Um, Around the World in 80 Days was actually shot twice uh, there were a series of movies that were shot twice in the mid-50s uh, in two different types of formats. Usually it was in 
they would shoot in both the regular 35 millimeter ratio and then in cinemascope uh, so they could accommodate both types of movie theaters since not every theater was equipped for widescreen yet. Um, but in Around the World in 80 Days case, they also had a special Todd A.O. Um, uh, print of the film. So technically there are two versions of this movie. Uh, only a couple of movies shot this way. Like Todd A.O. only lasted for a few years. And um, for the most part, uh, when they used it, they didn't... Um, they didn't use it in the way that it was intended um, uh, because Tadeo was supposed to be a higher frame rate, 70 millimeter uh, process. And so instead of running at 24 frames per second, it ran at 30 frames per second. Um, and uh, Oklahoma uh, was the other movie that used it in that way. Um, and uh, those were the only two movies that shot at that frame rate with Tadeo. Um, but they both shot twice, so there's both a Cinemascope and a Tadeo version of both films. Um, and I believe what we both watched is the Cinemascope version. That's just, that's the most widely available version of the film. Uh, supposedly, it's almost exactly the same, um, but technically it's a different take of every single shot, which is just an interesting thing to think about. And if it was a shorter movie, I'd be interested in watching both versions, but, um, <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that, <laughs> but, uh, you know, three hours of my life, you know, is a lot. So, um, but that said, uh, it, it, it's interesting to note this because this means that we're in this period where we're experimenting with these ultra widescreen formats, 70 millimeter film, all this stuff that's improving the quality of the picture and that's making everything, bigger and better and making it uh, a reason to go to the movie theater, basically. Absolutely. Everything you just said is incredibly true. And that's really, I think, this trend, which starts here in the 50s, even gets bigger in the 60s until, you know, the more gritty independent films of the 70s start to become um, bigger awards films. So this is going to be a continuing trend for quite a few years. This is also the first time we get a best foreign language film category at the Oscars. In years past, um, mm -hmm. the Oscars would give an honorary award to the filmmaker of the best foreign language film. But now we actually have a category with multiple nominees. And of course, it goes to Italy for La Strada. Um, that movie oh, yeah. takes the prize. It was also nominated for uh, screenplay. And I guess this kind of ties into uh, best supporting actor as well, which maybe we just, oh, should we just bounce does. over there. Should we just bounce to best supporting actor? Uh, one thing I want to mention before we go there, Please if you do. don't mind, there is still a best story Oscar in addition to the screenplay Oscars. And um, interestingly, uh, it goes to Dalton Trumbo for the brave one, but it's under a pseudonym. <laughs> he uh, he wrote it as Robert Rich because he was blacklisted at the time. So somebody who didn't exist won that Oscar. Um, and the movie High Society um, was nominated for Best Original Story. Uh, but there were two films named High Society that came out in 1956. 
Uh, one of them was a uh, what they called a Bowery Boys comedy. So a very lowbrow, 61-minute independent film, basically, that was um, not intended to get that Oscar because people thought they were voting for High Society, the uh, musical with Frank Sinatra and Grace Kelly. <laughs> right. Big difference. That Big is, difference. That shouldn't have been eligible for Best Story to begin That was not eligible for Best Story to begin with because... Um, because uh, uh, that was not an original story. It was based on a previous uh, movie called The Philadelphia Story, which was in turn based on a play. So, Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it was in Best Story, I'm assuming because I bet you people got like a list that included every original film that was made that year, and people saw High Society and thought, oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. This, I, liked, I liked High Society. So I find that really funny. Um, that is I fascinating. Also, I'd also like to note, note that, interestingly, um, the best original song Oscar goes to a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. That is very interesting. <laughs> uh, it go, Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Whatever that Doris will Jakes be. did not like and did not want to record. Um, interestingly. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, of course, she recorded it, and then it became a huge hit in her signature song for the rest of her life. Um, and uh, it plays a very important part in the plot. It is the crux of the climax of the film. So, um, uh, anyway, Hitchcock gets himself a film with an original song Oscar, still does not have a directing Oscar. <laughs> Uh, oh, man. Must be difficult being Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> but anyway, La Strada is the first film to win Best Foreign Language Film, and it happens to star the person who won Best Supporting Actor. Yes, it does. Anthony Quinn with his second win and even a shorter performance than the last one. I believe this this performance clocks in at just under 10 minutes. I think at the time this was the shortest Oscar-winning performance. Wow. Um, which is interesting. And I actually, I found, I think I found the only two scenes that he's in the movie on YouTube and I watched them and they're like fine. You know, it's nothing like amazing, but I do think his win is in larger recognition for his dual performance also in La Strada, which is absolutely perfect. And I think this award kind of is, is award for both movies, you know? Um, yes, I 100% think so. She was also married, it should be noted, to the adopted daughter of Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> that helps. So he had that royalty going on his side. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons as to why he uh, was so respected in Hollywood. But, um, I mean, I don't mind him having two supporting actor Oscars, so it's fine. Oh, I agree. I, what I think is also interesting here there is... are some people I really like in this category who I wouldn't mind having an Oscar. Definitely. Uh, Which one stands out to you the most? Well, I haven't seen Friendly Persuasion. I would really like to. Same. Um, Anthony Perkins should have been nominated in 1960, which we'll get yes. to, for Psycho. Written on the Wind is is really fun. It's a hot mess, but it's, it's really a hot mess, but in the best way. I agree with you. And what's so fun, Robert Stack? You guys might know him better as the Unsolved oh, Mysteries unsolved. guy. <laughs> did, you, did you watch the new Unsolved Mysteries? 
Yes, I did. I watched a couple episodes, yes. Did you notice that his silhouettes in the opening credits? Oh, I sure did. I sure did. It took me way back. It absolutely did. Oh, I used to watch that on Lifetime. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I used to watch it. It would scare the shit out of me. Oh, my gosh. I have no idea why. Okay, the new one scared me a little bit, too. The the first episode disturbing. Um, Sorry, what was this show about? Um, Robert Stack. (laughs) Yeah, talk about Robert Stack. Go ahead. Yes. Well, I read an interview with him that he was doing years later where he was looking back on this nomination, his only Oscar nomination. Um, And he says that he's convinced that he lost the Oscar uh, largely due in part because he was being loaned out. His home studio, 20th Century Fox, didn't want him to win an Oscar for a movie he was loaned out to. He was loaned to Universal for. So he thinks that they were, you know, campaigning against him, getting people to vote against him. So that's his word. Makes sense. Sure. I mean, that is unheard of. I mean, that's why Betty Davis didn't get a nomination in 1934. Exactly. But, I mean, also, I will say uh, this is one of uh, Mickey Rooney's, like, three nominations, right? Um, And I I do really like Mickey Rooney, and he has a huge impact on film in general. It would have been nice to get him an Oscar. Just looking at the list, I... You know, whenever someone wins two, you think about, like, okay, who else could have won here who never got one? And you know what I'll say? I will throw this in there. There is somebody who did not get a nomination who I think really should have. And we'll talk about this movie later on. But Eli Wallach, in his film debut in Baby Doll, he is fire in this movie. He is absolute fire. I think Baby Doll is underrepresented in in the nominations but um yeah and we'll get into that a bit more later but i think he's so good in the movie well i mean this is actually a good transition to supporting actress because somebody is nominated from baby doll and supporting actress we got mildred dunnick who is one of those supporting actresses who's in a whole bunch of things and you've probably seen her before just because she was very popular um but uh especially in the 50s but um she is nominated for Baby Doll, playing the Aunt Rose in the movie. And, like, it's fine. She's got, like, one moment where, you know, she kind of breaks down. She plays this kind of crazy aunt who's not really with it. Um, but it's kind of a throwaway part, in my opinion. Probably more of a, we're going to nominate you to nominate your career type of an award, you know, type of recognition. We also have uh, Eileen Heckart, who... Um, who ends up uh, acting for many, 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 many years um, and is in the first Wives Club, which is why I want <laughs> which to mention that. Notable. Important. <laughs> um, and uh, then Mercedes McCambridge is back. Um, and uh, she, I feel like she won her Oscar, though. She's good in Giant, but, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Before I, I'm, I really, I'm fine with the person who won. I just want to really mention how great Patty McCormick is in the bad seat. <laughs> Let's get into the bad seat. I love this movie so, so much. Please tell me your thoughts. Tell me all your thoughts. It's one of the great kid performances, I think, because she's Truly. so okay. Well, the bad seat is about a, a, a little girl who is literally the worst child you have ever met yes he is a murderous child i don't know how else to explain it it is so off the wall crazy and she is so evil yeah yeah (laughs) but the the little girl patty mccormick who plays it is perfect in this part 
She's, she's like, so yeah, she's that little blonde girl with like the the braids, and she's got everybody convinced that she's this little goody two shoes, never does anything wrong. But behind the scenes, she's literally killing people. And one of the 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 kids that she kills. Um, that kid's mother is played by Eileen Heckart, who is convinced that Patty McCormick is evil, and she tries to make her case, saying this kid needs to be taken away, and how heartbroken is she is that her son is has been killed at the hands of this what eight-year-old girl. Um, yeah, both really strong supporting performances, and it makes sense. This comes from a play um, where they're equally strong performances in the play as well. Yes, but obviously those were not the winners. They were uh, not. The- is uh, Miss Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind. Um, interestingly, there's a friend of mine, um, a photographer who's a friend of mine, who uh, uh, he lived by Dorothy Malone in Dallas for many years because she's from Texas and she retired to Texas. And he called her Dot. And um, anyway, she, he said she was amazing. Um, but uh, she holds nothing back and rich on the wind. <laughs> very true, very true. It's funny that you mentioned like Dallas. This is like the Dallas before Dallas, the dynasty before dynasty. Like this is soap opera movie trash that's just such wonderful melodrama, you know? <laughs> it is so it, like compulsively watchable. <laughs> and short too. It. It's got a great runtime. It just like flies by. Oh yeah, it's it's only ninety nine minutes long. Um, yeah. It it's it's a fun, quick watch. It is a great example of a Douglas Sirk melodrama, which this is the type of soap opera movie that he was famous for. We'll get another one in a couple of years called Imitation of a Life that he did. Um, but Dorothy Malone, it, it, she's kind of m- manic and she dances. <laughs> Sex crave, like she literally is like a nymphomaniac, you know. <laughs> she's so good at you know Dorothy Malone too. Um, uh she 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 isn't she doesn't have that many starring roles in films after this um uh which i suppose is why the academy did not include her in their in memoriam a couple years ago it's something i've not gotten over um oh i didn't realize that if you win an oscar you should get in you know absolutely but um but she uh she would later star on the television adaptation um, of Peyton Place, um, which was the first primetime soap opera um, like Dallas, you know, um, predating that. And it was an interesting setup because they would have uh, two and I think later three episodes a week um, in primetime. And they didn't have rerun. They didn't take the summer off, so it was wow. two weeks a year, new episodes, doing like a hundred plus episodes a year. Um, and she was on, and she was like the matriarch of that show. She played um, Mia Farrow's mom. In fact, Mia Farrow tweeted something when she uh, passed away about saying goodbye to her TV mom. But um, but uh, even in that. I've watched quite a bit of that show because it's it's really fun. I but, love that. Uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, they put them on DVD like uh, 10 or so years ago, and I was like, I want to watch this. And so <laughs> back in the days when you bought TV on DVD. Right. And, you're, like, you're like, complete box set, order, ship. <laughs> and you're like, $30 is fine. Uh, um, steal. 
<laughs> now we won't, we would never do that. Um, but uh, I I watched quite a few episodes, and she she has a lot of written on the wind in this, but she's she's more of a, a saintly character because she's the matriarch, you know. But um, right, right, right. Uh, but anyway, I I really liked Worth Me Alone, and I like her having an Oscar. That's really. Oh, yeah. And I think as well that she has the standout performance in the movie. I think she's the one that you walk away kind of being like, oh, yeah, she really killed it. You know, so I'm totally fine with that as well. I would have I would have preferred this award go to either Eileen Heckard, who does win an Oscar in the 70s. But her or Patty McCormick, I think, are my favorites. But I'm fine with Dorothy Malone as well. OK, uh, so moving on to the main acting categories. Yes, yes. Uh, we have. um a, a guy who's uh, these two the best actor and actress are kind of connected this year. Um, they truly are, yeah. But uh, speaking of um, written on the wind, one of the other stars of written on the wind is Rock Hudson, mm-hmm. who is nominated for his the only time for best actor um, for his role in Giant, yes. alongside his co-star, his second posthumous nomination, James Dean. Um, I, I really like that Rock Hudson got this. I really like Rock Hudson. I like oh, Rock Hudson. A lot. Oh, me too. Yes. Um, and, uh, for me between, I know this may be controversial for me, but between him and James Dean, I, I, I think I like him more oh, in this yeah. movie. I okay. agree with you. Yeah. James Dean gets a little hammy in this performance. It's almost like George Stevens didn't try to rein him in at all. And there are some scenes where it's a little like, Oh, someone should have told you to stop that. <laughs> well, I don't think he does the the aging part very well. Very true. Yes. The older version is not as good. I think that this nomination may have been in part because of. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. The enduring legacy of James Dean. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I don't think Rock Hudson necessarily a win, but I really like him having this nomination. Definitely. If, if for any of his movies, this is obviously his most critically acclaimed, his biggest movie, his, you know what I mean? Literally. So I think this was his best chance and the nomination is definitely deserving. However, I this I think this is one of those categories where there is an undisputable champion and that is Yul Brynner. I truly don't think this award was going to go to anybody else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like looking at the rest of the category, obviously Lawrence Olivier won for Hamlet. He's not going to win for another Shakespearean ab- adaptation. Right. Uh, Kirk Douglas. It'd be nice if Kirk Douglas had an Oscar. I know. Um, but, and lust for life is, uh, is a good little Vincent Minnelli movie, but, um, but Yul Brynner, this is an iconic role for him. Iconic. Iconic. Yes. And this and, is also a humongous year for Yul Brynner, as you said. He's He stars opposite Ingrid Bergman and Anastasia. And he's also Ramesses in the Ten Commandments. He also is super sexy. He's very sexy. He is. He is. He is. That's just a fact. I mean, this category, let's talk about it. Yul Brenner, James Dean, Rock Hudson, Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier. Like, these are some hot. I mean, Lawrence Olivier is Richard III is not hot or sexy. But <laughs> them as people, but, they're just I mean, pretty men. But oh, yeah, these are some good-looking leading men. This is a good year for us. <laughs> it really is. Think about um. But Yul Brynner, uh, 
I mean, like, I just don't, I, like, uh, in a year where he is, like, the top movie star. Yeah. I feel like this is the standout performance of the three. This is the one where he's really, truly leading. Yes. And um, and it's probably what he's still best known for. So I like him winning for this. It's a well-thought-out performance. It is. It is. As is Deborah Carr's. As is Deborah Carr, yes, I know. Oh, yes. Should we should we move over to the best actress? That was my. That was a great transition. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Deborah Carr is great. This is also probably her iconic performance. Um, oh, yeah. I guess she's maybe ticked a little bit um, off because she doesn't do her own singing. Um, True, which is interesting. I mean, we should talk about that. It's again, it's Marnie Nixon who is dubbing her singing voice, who later famously. Yeah, this is the first time we talked about Marnie. I think you're right. This is the first time. This is her first, like, iconic Hollywood singing dub. She will later dub yes. Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Did, she did dub the high notes in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which we didn't talk about because it wasn't really nominated for much, um, in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. There you go. Which also has George DeCurious as one of the backup dancers. Anyway. And um, I think it's I think it's worth noting as well that in later movies where Marnie Nixon dubs actresses, for example, Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady, Audrey Hepburn did not get nominated for Best Actress. But here we have her dubbing Deborah Carr, and Deborah Carr does enough acting on her own that she does get a nomination. You know, they didn't kind of knock her down for having someone dub her singing voice. You know, it's weird, too. I, I mean, we'll talk about... Uh, we'll talk about um, Audrey Hepburn's performance in My Fair Lady later. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say early, I, I don't think it's fair that she wasn't nominated because I do think she's very, very good in that movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I do think, I think, I mean, like, I think dubbing is just a thing and it doesn't bother me personally. Um, and oh, no, because you can't tell, like, when Deborah Carr starts singing in this movie, it, it's so seamless and effortless, and it really Marnie sounds like her. Right. Mar- Marnie Nixon is a great dubber because she was able to morph her voice to sound like the people she was singing for. Yeah. So it was seamless, you know, and you believed that's how they sang. Yeah, where's her honorary yeah. Oscar? Yeah, for real, for her <laughs> contribution to these performances. So, um, and in a lot of ways, maybe this was Deborah Carr's best chance to win. I don't know. Um, a lot of people probably say she should win for this. Um, but uh, but there's a few other heavy hitters, and uh, there's two other big heavy hitters in this, and then there's two other really solid performances here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we've talked, we already started talking about Baby Doll. Uh, Carol Baker is great. <sighs> As so good. And it should be noted as well, like Baby Doll has kind of gone down in history now as one of the most controversial films, not only in the 1950s, but of all time. When this movie came out, it was condemned by the Catholic Church. And the crazy thing about that is they didn't even watch the movie. All it took for them was to look at the, the movie's poster which showed Carol Baker as Baby Doll laying in a crib, sucking her thumb and looking right into camera. I mean, it is a very, um, it's, you know, it's it's a little scandalous, but the movie itself, you know, you look at it today and you watch it today, it's very, very tame. Minus the scene where Carol Baker uh, and Eli Wallach 
sort of have their little confrontation where he really tries to arouse her. And this is kind of, I think, the scene that's gone down in history as being the most, like, seductive and scandalous of the whole film. And I will say, it is seductive and scandalous. And maybe that's why I really think Eli Wallach should have gotten a nomination. He goes above and beyond in playing this creepy man, but not really, not really cre- seductive, I guess, is the word. He's really seductive and it's it really works (laughs) you mentioned the poster for baby doll and i do want to encourage people to uh go online and look for this poster just because it is it's a it's a good one for your house honestly this is good wall art it's oh yeah it is a great poster um but it is a tennessee williams screenplay and he is known for his um salaciousness oh yes and uh again it's Elia kazan uh directing and it should also be noted as well that uh in the mid 70s they revived the play of baby doll which was originally called 27 wagons full of cotton they revived it on broadway as like a a night of one act and meryl streep plays the role of baby doll and it's her only tony award nomination I did not know that. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I really am upset that Meryl hasn't attempted to get a Tony. It makes me so sad. I, I, I mean this. I'm not just saying this for you. I really wish Meryl would do something on the stage. Me too. Because I know they would nominate her. She might win. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. I feel like... I feel like it would be so easy for her to get a Tony if she just put in some effort. Um, <laughs> yeah, come and, on, girl. <laughs> um, and I don't know why she hasn't gone there. Um, because it seems to be a choice. She hasn't done anything on Broadway in decades. Yeah. So I need her to do this because she's tried for that Grammy. <laughs> you know? She sure um, has. And she'll probably get another Grammy nom with the cast of Prom. Oh, there you go. Their album, um, which that won't come until like, like the cutoff for Grammys is like in October or something. So that'll be next year before we we see that nomination. I'm just saying we got to get Meryl that Grammy. We got to give her that Tony. We got to get her the EGOT. I just it's it's like it hurts my soul that she's not an egot. Like it just hurts my soul because it could she's, it could, not even, she's not even she doesn't even have the triple crown. I know. I know. Like at least get a Tony, Meryl. Like you could do, she could do any like featured performance in any play. Like she doesn't even have to star in one. Just get a featured actress, Tony. Really upsetting. The other actresses we have here we haven't discussed yet. Nancy Kelly is the mom in the bad seed of Patty McCormick, the little devil child. And great. she's really great. She really, really is great. She really kind of is the glue that holds the whole movie together because the movie is very stagey. You can tell it's adapted from a stage. You need somebody who who can hold your attention to be Definitely. the lead. And Absolutely. she she's she is really, really great. She probably wasn't going to win because she was up against such heavy hitters. Oh, but yeah. that is but the fact that she's here should say something about how good her performance is. And then you've got Katherine Hepburn, um, who was the Meryl Streep before Meryl Streep, with yet another nomination for The Rainmaker. I haven't seen it. I have. You like it? She's good. Um, she <laughs> Obviously. Should not, she shouldn't win for this. Fair. Uh, that's, um, she's a little... Um, I, I think the one issue with this movie is she's almost... Uh, 
it's funny because she plays a middle-aged woman, but for some reason, it's almost like she's too old a middle-aged woman. Interesting. And in that, uh, yeah, it's like she should be thirty-five or forty, like that type of—not actual middle-aged, but what they would have thought as middle-aged. Um, in uh, in the the Depression era when this takes place, um, what they would have thought of as a spinster, basically. Right. They take they take a spinster role and they make it into a middle aged into a middle aged woman. That's how I should put it. Um, and it's it's uh, her and Burt Lancaster is just kind of weird. It is weird. I will say, anytime Burt Lancaster is playing these like romantic love interests to these women, it just is awkward. He was awkward last year with Anna McNani. He was awkward a couple years before with Shirley Booth. I don't know what it is, but he just does not play that romantic leading man very well. Except if he's on a beach rolling around with Deborah Carr. It's Fair. really the only time it works. But the winner... <laughs> the winner! ...is uh, Miss Ingrid Bergman for playing uh, potentially Anastasia. We don't actually know if she's Anastasia. Shalee, uh, yes. Uh, have you seen this movie? I have. Do you like this movie? Um, I think it's good. I don't think it's great. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I think I enjoyed it as much on the subject matter than I do yes. on the film itself. Um, it's very similar to uh, the... It's a Fox film, and Fox would basically remake this movie as a cartoon in the 90s, which is the version of Anastasia most people probably know, um, yeah. where Meg Ryan mm. is... The vocal role of Anastasia, but not the singing <laughs> role. The vocal role, um, and uh, because as we know from when Harry met Sally, she can't sing. Anyway, Damn right. uh, <laughs> but uh, it's just basically a. It's a very. It's a stagey movie because it is from the stage, um, where Ingrid Bergman uh, plays a woman who um, they're trying to pass off as the Empress Anastasia. Um, the royal princess, Anastasia, the supposed um, survivor of the Romanov family uh, who was all killed in the basement uh, during the Russian Revolution, the beginning of the Re- Russian Revolution. Um, and she um, turns out that she might actually be Anastasia, is basically what the plot of the film is. Right. And uh, she meets her grandmother, Played by Helen Hayes, who isn't nominated. Interesting. Which she should have. Do you yeah. think so? I think so. Yeah, I, I just thought about that. But the scenes with her are like the best of the movie. Oh, yeah. That's where the movie, I think, really comes to life is when it's Ingrid Bergman and Helen Hayes um, together on screen. The rest of it's kind of fluffy and whatever. There's like a forced, you know, romance, romance side there with her and Yul Brynner, which sort of works kind of doesn't really work but no it's definitely more about those two performances but yeah i I don't know as far as ingrid bergman goes you know i don't think this is her best performance i don't think it's the strongest of the five nominated i think her win here has way more to do with hollywood finally welcoming her back into their community after basically exiling her after her affair with roberto rosalini and having a child out of wedlock 
It's funny. I think that Ingrid Bergman is a person who um, I'm completely okay with her having three Oscars because it seems like her as an actress deserves three Oscars. Yeah. But um, I don't know if she always won for what she should have won for, you know? True. Um, she's really good in Anastasia, and I, it's not it's not a problem Oscar. You know, it's not one where you're going to watch it and you're going to go, man, I'm angry that this happened, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's just... Um, um, it's probably not actually the the best, the most challenging performance of the year. Uh, she does she does everything she's supposed to do. It's a very very good performance. I think it's just that when you take into context that you have such an interesting performance from Carol Breaker, um, that you have uh, Deborah Carr who never won an Oscar, it just becomes a little um, like ah, what else could we have done here? Um, I'm not I'm not mad at it, but it is um, and I'm very glad that I saw the movie. The scenes with her and Helen Hayes are stupendously acted. I'm just saying on the whole. Yep, I agree. And it's also, you know, I mentioned that this was sort of Hollywood welcoming her back. It's, it's interesting to note that even though, yes, that's true. Ingrid Bergman didn't really go back to Hollywood. She was not there to accept the Oscar of this movie filmed across seas in Europe, and many of her subsequent films also filmed in Europe. So she never really returned to Hollywood. You know, they might have welcomed her movies, but she personally didn't really go back until years and years later, you know? Yeah, she never she never lived in Hollywood again. Yeah. Um, the only time she lived in Hollywood was the 40s. After that, she, um, she, she stayed in Europe, you know, and um, for a while, she, of course, was married to Roberto Rossellini, and basically her reacceptance into society coincided with divorcing Roberto Rossellini. Um, and, uh, of course, from Rossellini, she had her daughter, Isabella, mm-hmm. who um, would give us one of the great supporting roles in a Meryl Streep movie. Uh, oh my gosh, we've mentioned Meryl so many times this episode, and it makes definitely. me so happy. <laughs> um, I just did that for you. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, that affair ended up being the thing that made Hollywood go, oh, we are not going to accept this tart anymore, even though they had been accepting tarts for years. Years, both, oh yeah. Both, uh, especially men, they didn't care. I mean, like, I mean, Errol Flynn went up for rape charges and they and they didn't mind i mean it was a very picky and choosy um, oh yeah it's because she wasn't fitting this mold of what hollywood run by straight white men you know wanted to model their actresses after i mean you know you want to have an appealing wholesome woman that way you know when her name is on the marquee it's going to sell tickets people feel safe going to an ingrid bergman film ingrid bergman was supposed to be this ethereal um, ethereal, um, saintly woman, and she did something that was against that. So that leads us to director. Yes. Um, director, for the first time in a while, almost lines up with picture. There's only one difference. Yep. Um, Ten Commandments is not nominated for director um, for Cecil B. DeMille. Instead, uh, King Vidor is nominated for War and Peace, um, which this is a big epic version that co-stars Miss uh Audrey Hepburn and Henry Fonda, oh, yeah. um, along with uh, uh, Mel Farrar, um, who was married to Audrey Hepburn at the time. Um, 
So uh, obviously that's based on the big epic historical novel. Then we have, uh, of course, uh, usual suspect William Wyler, Friendly Persuasion. Uh, Michael Anderson was nominated for Around the World in 80 Days, which we'll talk more about in a second. Walter Lang for The King and I. But the winner, um, one of his two Oscars in the 50s, is uh, George Stevens, who never won for a Best Picture winner. Right. Yeah, no, it was always split. They would always give him Best Director, but his movie was would not win Best Picture. And, I mean, in this case, I agree. I think Giant is pretty overlong. Um, but it's a, it's a well-crafted film. You, know, you can't really take away anything from the direction of it, I guess. But, you know... What? It is overlong. <laughs> it's also better than the winner (laughs) (laughs) yes it i mean yeah okay let's this kind of yeah i feel like this conversation is similar to the conversation we're going to have as best picture since a lot of the nominees do line up um to me giant makes the most sense to be the best picture winner of this year if i'm looking at the nominations um but around the world in 80 days snuck in there and took the award. And I sh- it should also be noted that around the world in 80 days also won a lot of the other precursor best picture awards that year as well. You know, so it wasn't I shouldn't say in the year it wasn't a surprise that it took the award. It might be surprising now that we look back and we can uh, kind of critique these films from a different standpoint. If a few years ago, the travesty that was the greatest show on earth winning best picture had not happened. I don't think I would have minded it being like the 10 commandments. Right. Because that at least has held probably the largest place in popular culture of these movies. Yeah. Um, and mainly because it plays on TV every Easter and it's just iconic. This is just a weird set of nominees. Cause I don't really feel like anything's a great movie. No. Okay. Yes. Thank you for saying that. I will. I could, not agree more. True, I haven't seen Friendly Persuasion, but... Baby Doll and The Bad Seed are my favorite movies that we've talked about. Yup, that is accurate. I'm looking at the nominees, that is accurate. Yeah, that is 100% accurate. Both of those movies are better than every one of of the four Best Picture winners, uh, I Best Picture nominees I've seen. Absolutely. And, like, yeah, even if we're ranking these, like, these five nominees around the world in 80 days... Yikes, that one might be at the bottom, honestly, now that we've seen it. (laughs) There's just so many issues with this movie. The one thing I'll say about Around the World in 80 Days is it is shot beautifully. There are landscapes in this movie and, you know, sprawling um, cinematic moments where, especially with the hot air balloon in the beginning, as it's flying over these countrysides, like it is beautiful to watch. It did win best cinematography, and that makes sense. What's cool too about this film is it's kind of fun to watch around the world in eighty days because it's really a product of its time, where it's it's supposed to be showing people at home or in the theater all these different countries and sites, but the vast majority of this film was shot in studios, so you can really see how they've recreated these countries in studios and i think that is kind of marvelous to behold the amount of work that must have gone into this is one of the biggest productions of all time it still is even today one of the biggest undertakings hollywood has ever done and it shows so it's a very impressively mounted film 
but yes. they mix in they mix in the location photography and the studio work very seamlessly honestly yeah. they do a very very good job of um because you do get some some great uh astounding on location footage uh, particularly whenever they're traveling like on a train or a boat which happens a couple of times yeah. um you'll get a shot where it's just like you're looking from the perspective of the of the hole of the boat and uh that's the right the hole yeah that sounds right yeah the head (laughs) the the front the front (laughs) (laughs) we really know nothing about anything except movies guys literally (laughs) know nothing else uh and you'll just get this incredible vista going down the middle of a river or um going down uh part uh going down a train track and seeing all the stuff um in whatever country you're in because they go literally around the world and it's it is astounding and there is certainly a great effort um to showcase so much about the world in ways that you had not seen it and then they do a great job for the um scenes because usually the stuff that's in studio you can you can tell i mean like there's clearly some stuff um, that they shot on location with the actors in uh, particularly England, I would assume. And uh, Spain with the whole bullfighting scene. And the bullfight. Um, which is but, 30 minutes too long. Which is uh, a, th- a third of the film, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, ultimately, um, it is a spectacle. And the, and the, the, the thing to recommend about having it on in the background while you're doing something else is that it's a spectacle. Yeah, and also the cameos, which I think is probably what really popularized this film. I mean, I read somewhere that this movie invented the cameo. I don't think that's true. I mean, we saw a few years earlier with the cameo of Bing Crosby and Bob Hope in The Greatest Show on Earth. You know, to oh, me, yeah, that's... Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely there's... I mean, and... Uh, if you ever see a movie called uh, Hollywood Canteen, oh yeah, from the forties, uh, Joan Crawford has a great cameo in that movie. Joan Crawford also has a cameo in a movie called um, "It's a Great Feeling." It's one of Doris Day's first films, and it takes place on the Warner Brothers lot. And her and Errol Flynn and some others make some cameos as themselves in the movie. Yeah. Um, so this cameos were not unheard of, and obviously Hitchcock had been making cameos for years. Right. And maybe but, this is just a better example of like having so many cameos. You know, I mean, there's literally like what 30, 40 cameos in this movie. It's insane. You know, like yeah. uh, uh, Marlena Dietrich and Charles Boyer and all these random people. Frank Sinatra. Frank you know, Sinatra. yeah, that makes it kind of fun to watch. But as far as the storyline goes, there's really not a, a lot going on. David Niven is the lead character here. Um, and he's, he's fine. He's British. Yeah, he's, he's fine. He's he's reliable. The problematic casting, <laughs> yes, uh, is the very pale and white, very American Shirley MacLaine uh, <laughs> yeah. is cast as an Indian princess. There was a moment where I saw this. I saw this scene happening, and I was like, "Oh, interesting that they chose to show." She's about. She's literally about to be sacrificed 
because her husband has passed away and they're going to like burn her at the altar and tribute to him or some weird Indian ritual. And they save her. And I remember when they when they saved her and they brought her on the ship, I was looking at her. I was like, that can't be Shirley MacLaine. And then she starts to speak. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Shirley MacLaine. This is um, embarrassing. Not not the best best picture winner that Shirley MacLaine is in. No, she is in more than one. She's in more than two, actually. Um, so she does get a chance to make up for this and evolve more into the Shirley MacLaine that we know and love. I don't know why she's playing an Indian princess here. I don't know why anyone thought this was a good idea, particularly when you have so many people of the correct ethnic backgrounds portraying parts in the movie. You know, like one of the other leads in the film, um... Uh, what's the actor's name? Conflitas? Yes, Conflitas, who is from Mexico and playing a Mexican. <laughs> and that's interesting, too. Like, when um, Around the World in 80 Days was airing in Mexico, they gave him top billing over David Niven because he was the biggest box office star from Mexico. And he, he probably has um, the most sympathetic part in the movie, too. You know, he's... And he's very, very good. It's just interesting to me that you have that you cast uh, somebody who probably was not super well known in the states in the in an ethnically correct part, and you don't bother. You know, I guess it has something to do with the fact that she has a romance with David Niven, and the censors didn't like interracial relationships. I'm sure that was why. It just it just sticks out like a sore thumb when you're going to such great lengths to show culture yes like that's the whole point of the movie and his name is i was i was wrong it's canteen floss that's close um canteen floss there were three writers on this do you know who one of the writers was who john farrow who is the father of mia yeah hey look at that second time i mentioned mia farrow and and one yeah, she never gets a nomination, so I have to work them in. Oh, you know right. what? I actually also think John Farrow was the original director, and he was fired literally on the second day of filming, and that's where they brought Michael Anderson in. The other thing I will say is I, I, I do think um, as for uh, the movie does not um, do a very respectful job of uh, handling Native Americans as well. So yeah, there's there's a lot of problematic aspects of this there are plenty of reasons why i mean there are plenty of little scenes here and there that are fun um i agree with you that this is kind of grouped in with the greatest show on earth where it's just large extravaganza spectacle for the sake of being spectacle there's slim to no plot here you know it's, it's barely held together so there's not a lot to like keep you invested in the story <laughs> at all <laughs> i i also wanted to mention something that kind of threw me off. Yeah. Was, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if threw me off is the right reason. It it started in a way I wasn't expecting. The whole movie? Um, yeah, the whole yes, movie. Yeah, me too. I thought I had the wrong movie. <laughs> it started, for it showed, first of all, you, you're seeing only the size um, of the old Academy ratio in the middle of the screen. Very small a reporter talking to you and then presenting footage from the 
a trip to the moon uh video which is one of the original films um and and he's explaining the advancement of man in travel over the years and then they flash back to the story it's very loosely oddly thrown together prologue that i that is then expanded into the widescreen uh splendor that we see after it but you don't get credits you don't get a logo you don't get um a movie title or anything which is pretty common nowadays right very unusual back then and you don't get any credits until the end of the movie when Saul Bass, mm-hmm. who is uh, the preeminent title designer, uh, starting at, starting about this time and going all the way into the '90s, um, he is most famous for his works with Hitchcock, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho. Oh yeah, um, his credits are amazing, and the credits for this movie are so interesting because. They mix the everything's jumbled. You don't get they have so many cameos, I guess, in the movie. You don't get um, a straight list of cast. Mm-hmm. It just goes, uh, here's the art director and here's three more people that were in the movie. And then here's this and there's two more people that were in the movie. And David Niven's like thrown in the middle, you know, and it's not alphabetical. no. Uh, it's it's just a very it's a very unique very um all over the place credit sequence that is better than the movie oh absolutely you know what i read too the reason he did the credits the way he did them he kind of grouped them together um per like country like if you had a cameo in this country you'd be listed and he did that so that the actors and actresses who made their cameos wouldn't fight over billing since a lot of them were huge stars who might have fought for a higher billing than the other he said you know what we're just going to group you together by whatever country you appear in (laughs) i'm confused by how low david niffin was that is confusing yes it is yeah (laughs) i don't get that either um so it was like a little, it was very all over the place, but um, just like the movie. I, I mean, like, yeah. but the title sequence at the end is, is, is the best part. Personally, no, don't watch this movie. You guys don't, we'll, we'll save you three hours of your life. Don't watch it. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I mean, uh, if you, if you want to be so blunt, um, <laughs> let's get into next week. Rans. We have, could not be more opposite from what we've been talking about these last, uh, this last a movie year. that yeah. is a pretty agreed upon classic. Absolutely, we're going to be discussing 1957's *The Bridge on the River Kwai*. Yes, indeed, I look forward to it. So we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>